0: in a series called A Savior is Born. And uh, I want to look at a passage of scripture in Galatians chapter 4. And I want us to look and listen from the Apostle Paul as he gives his version of the Christmas story. And he captures it in just a few verses. You know, this a letter that Paul wrote was written 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, around 50, 51 AD. This was happening right before uh, Paul was executed uh, by, the, by the emperor Nero. And, um, and so this, this is in that later part of his life, the end of his life, and he's writing this letter and, um, and, and so this was 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, about 50, 55 years after the birth of Jesus. And so he, he writes this passage, and he thought, you know what, I want to give a different version of the Christmas story. What well, he didn't want to give us, he didn't want to give us the nativity Christmas story. We all know the nativity Christmas story with the wise men and the shepherds and the angels, you know, the baby Jesus in a manger. And it's so important to, our, uh, to the story. And uh, we will talk about that next weekend and Christmas Eve. And uh, it's it, 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 it very important. And I'm not trying to, you know, uh, negate, negate the Christmas nativity, but Paul wanted to take it. He didn't want to talk about that. He wanted to peel the layers of the Christmas story, and he wanted to go a little bit deeper. He really wanted to talk about the real meaning behind the whole thing, the whole story. And so that's what we're going to see here. He's looking back. The Apostle Paul is looking back on the birth of Jesus, looking back on the life of Jesus. He's looking, you know, at the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and now he wants to give us his version of the Christmas story, and one more thing you need to know about there is that he wrote this letter not to a Jewish person, but he wrote this letter primarily to the Roman or a Greek audience. This was a group of churches in the area called Galatia, hence that's the name of this book, Galatians. And so this is a Roman audience, a Greek audience, and I want us to jump into this passage and see this. Christmas version. And a lot of us we've read this before, but we never really, I don't think a lot of us really contemplate what was going on here in these verses. Galatians chapter 4, verse number 4. But when the set time had fully come, and I'm gonna pause here for a minute because we talked about this last week. Remember last week, we talked about the appointed time. That God had an appointed time for Christmas, for that very, very first Christmas. And so we talk about that, how for centuries and centuries that the Jewish people were waiting and waiting and waiting for that very, very first Christmas. They were waiting for the Savior to be born. They were waiting for the Messiah to appear. And and there was this sense that God had marked it on His calendar, even though he'd been silent, You know, he wasn't necessarily absent. He'd been working behind the scene, behind the whole thing, and he had marked in his calendar, hey, this is happening. And when the time, when the set time had fully come, and and then we see this, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, here's what's significant about this. He said that Jesus was born under the law, which meant that when Jesus was born as a baby, he was born accountable to the laws of God, specifically to the Mosaic laws, which is the Ten Commandments and all the commands that went with it, about 600 commands that follow along the Ten Commandments. And so Jesus was born under the law To redeem, verse number five, to redeem those under the law. I want you to circle the word those in your handout note. Just circle the word those, and that means you and me. He redeemed those, me, you, that are under the law. And here's why we know that, because throughout the scripture, we're presented with this idea that God has a law and we've all broken it. In fact, none of us are good law keepers. Why not? If the truth be told, you can't even keep up with your own laws, right? And think about this. Every January, (laughs) we set some laws we set some dieting laws. we set some exercising laws. And let's just be honest. I think most of us have broken those laws that we set. No one else, no one else has imposed those laws on you. You established the laws, and you've broken your own laws. Some of you have broken some parenting laws that you've established for yourselves. Maybe some of you have broken some marriage laws that you've established for yourselves. Some of you have broken some honesty laws that you've established for yourselves. We're all lawbreakers, every one of us. And not only have we broken the laws of God, and even if you don't believe in the laws of God, you've broken your own laws. We're all lawbreakers. And so we're born under the law. In fact, we know what's right and we know what's wrong. And those of us who are Christians, we get our right and wrong, our authority from the Word of God. And for those who have not yet taken that step, you know, maybe you're not planning on doing it anytime soon, the fact is you've broken laws. You have broken laws. And when you break those laws, here's what you have discovered. Here's what I've discovered. If you're taking notes, you create a debt-debtor relationship with the laws that you've broken. You create a debt-debtor relationship with the person who established those laws. Even when you agree or disagree with the laws, you've established a debt-debtor relationship. Most of us in this room probably agree with the speed limits. All right, great. We are, I think all of us agree that there's, there's a reason why there's a speed limit on certain roads. are different limits. They keep us safe. And I think that most of us in this room, you know, we've all broken the speed limit laws. Even if you went a half a mile over the speed limit, you've broken the law, okay? And I think most of us have it in one way or the other, and there's always going to be somebody to remind you that you've broken that law. All you have to do is, from time to time, when you break the speed limit law, is just look in the rearview mirror, (laughs) and there's someone there to remind you. And he walked up to the window, and essentially, he would say, we now, my friend, have a debt-debtor relationship. You broke the law, and now you owe us. You owe us. And we see this dynamic in our relational lives as well, between husbands and wives, children and parents, employers and employees. We experience a debt-debtor relationship when we break a law and we owe someone, and when there's sin, when a law is broken, then there's a immediately, immediately there's a debt, debt relationship that's established between us and God. We've broken the law, and you say, "Man, Scott, this is uh, for a Christmas message for week two. This sounds pretty heavy." You know, I mean, this all sounds great. I mean, it, but it's heavy. I mean, okay, we've got the debt-debt relationship, but here's the good news. He said, when the set time fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Let me, again, Let's stop here for a minute. The word redeem means to buy back, to pay for, to trade for, Jesus came to redeem or to buy back those who were under the law, which means, and and this is the gospel. I mean, this is the thing that lit up the first century. I mean, this is the thing that got the message spread all around the world, is that Jesus came, he died on the cross for the payment of the sin that you and I have committed And that by paying for our sin, that that debt that we owe to God has been removed. And here's the deal. Even if if we try to pay God back, we can't. It's impossible. But think about this. You owe some people things, relationally speaking, and you can't pay back either, right? I mean, think about this. Perhaps you've been married before, and you're like, man, I can't go back into that first marriage. You can't be the husband or the wife that you should have been. You can't go back and, and redo the first marriage. You can't have a do-over. It's impossible. You can't go back into time. You can't go back in time to be the father or the mother that you should have been to your kids. It's, it's impossible. And so there are times that we owe people things that we just cannot pay them back. And in the same way, the Bible teaches that when we've broken the laws of God, there's no way for us to pay God back. We just can't go back and undo all the sins, all the things that we've done. So here's what Jesus did. He came into the world, died on a cross so that he can redeem us from the law and that the that the law can no longer condemn us. And even though we're lawbreakers, God and Jesus Stood together at judge and jury, and they said, Hey, even though you're absolutely guilty, you don't owe us anymore. We don't owe the debt. And that's amazing, right there. I mean, I think of this week if you got a random phone call and, and you answered the phone. And first of all, you think, you're not sure who it is, and the first thing that you're thinking in your mind is someone calling about your expired warranty, you know, or the student loan that you haven't paid back, that you never had in the first place. And uh, so you pick up the phone, and it's your mortgage company, and they're like, hey, um, we've got good news for you. Um, We noticed that you have X amount of dollars remaining on your mortgage, and our board of our board got together, and we decided to forgive you of the debt. You don't owe us no more. And, and you'll be excited by that news. You'd like you'd like, so, you would be like pumped. you would be like, man, you will be so thankful. You'd be, you'll be like, man, thank you. And whoever paid, I mean, someone had to pay for it. And you say, hey, let them know, thank you. Thank you for paying the debt. We have been redeemed, right? And the Bible says that we have been redeemed. Our debt has been paid by someone else and his name is Jesus. Now, this is only the beginning because we're talking about this transaction, this redemption, this uh, this, uh, forgiveness of our debt-debtor relationship. And and it sounds great, but it sounds very businesslike. And it's so important. And it's awesome to have this salvation. But this is just the beginning of what, the Apostle Paul really wanted to show us an impassive scripture. In fact, if you were to be uh, in the courthouse and you were accused of a crime, um, and the judge and the jury on that day of judgment say, hey, you know, stand, and I'm going to read out the, the verdict, and they say you're not guilty. You'll be pumped about that. You'll be like, man, that is awesome. I get to walk away free from the crime that I have been accused of. The judge saw not guilty. The jury members saw not guilty. And you will walk out. You will thank them. You will say, hey, thank you. Thank you for you. would be happy to. You, you, It'll be a great moment. And you will walk out of your courthouse, and that's it with the judge and the jury members. There's no phone number. There's no relationship. You know, it was a great moment, and, but that's it. And Paul wanted to see that there's something more than just being redeemed. There's something more than this, this transaction, spiritually speaking, that just took place. There's something more. And so he goes deeper than that, and he reaches into his own culture in a way that you and I just can't fully appreciate. Because we don't live in that culture, but he, but he looked for this word picture, this metaphor, to really describe the significance of what happened when Jesus came into this world to redeem those that are under the law. And here's what he says, verse number five. Let's look at verse five again. He said he came to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. I want, I want you to look at that. adoption to sonship. And, and, and this is so powerful. But in our culture, we don't quite understand this, the way that it was written. Adoption to sonship. It, it's not enough from God's perspective to say you're forgiven, that your debt's been paid. God said, man, I want more than that. I, I want a relationship. I want a relationship. You know, you and I, I could, we can could forgive people. I never have a relationship with that person. You know, like I said, a judge can look at, the, you, know, look at you from over the bench and say, hey, you've been forgiven, and, but not have a relationship with you. But Paul says, man, as I look back at the life of Christ and the birth of Christ and the resurrection and the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, as I, as I look over, I, I, I've come to discover that, it's, that God wants more than just forgiveness. He wants a relationship with you. And so he pulls out in, in that culture the best way to describe what he's trying to communicate is that word adoption. Now, in that culture, when he wrote wrote that word adoption in this verse, and when they read the word adoption, they don't think, and they didn't think the way that we would think today. You see, when we think of the word adoption, we think of babies, right? We think of toddlers. And and who, who wouldn't want a baby? We wouldn't want to adopt a baby? And here's what's so cool. In the very first century, in the Roman world, no one adopted babies. No one adopted a toddler because they didn't want to take a chance of adopting a child and not grow up in a way that they want that child to be grown up as. So they didn't want to take a chance on that. So no one adopted in the Roman world babies, or toddlers. In fact, in the Jewish world, there was no adoption, period. I mean, that was unheard of. But the Romans, the rich and the wealthy, and maybe, you know, those in politics that could afford it, they would adopt, not babies or children, but they would adopt grown-ups, adults. And here's why. Because they knew they basically could get a resume on an adult. They knew what that person's character was all about. And so they could be growing up, and they've got all this wealth, and they want to pass it on, and look down to their own children, and they're like, man, they're spoiled. I mean, there's no way I want to give my stuff to them. Or maybe they have titles and, you know, uh, political names, and, and they get to pass the polit- political legacy on. And, and they like, I don't want to give it to my son or daughter. They're, they're not worthy. I, I need to find somebody else. And so what they would do is they would go and adopt someone that they felt was worthy enough to carry on his family in name. They would adopt adults. You may remember this from your ancient history class. Right after Julius Caesar was assassinated, they opened his will. And when they opened his will, they learned some things about Julius Caesar's. In the will, he had adopted, nobody knew this until the will was opened, but he had adopted his grandnephew to be one of his sons. And then in his will, he said, My grandnephew, his name, by the way, was Octavian. He said, Octavian, I want him to have all my stuff. I want him to be the next emperor of Rome. He said, I see all my other kids. They can have this little stuff here and this little stuff here, my blood child, my blood children. But I don't want them to have the real stuff. I want Octavian, who, by the way, is 19 years old. I mean, think about this. Octavian, you know, had no idea that he's been adopted by the emperor. He sees him as, you know, great uncle. (laughs) So can you imagine the Roman officials coming to his dorm room, knocking on the doors? You got Octavian in there. He's playing Xbox. He's doing whatever, doing his thing. They did knock on the door and say, "Hey, Octavian, um, we've got some news for you. Uh, you know, your uncle, your great uncle, he died." And and uh, I said, "Yeah, yeah." He said, "Well, we opened up the will, and guess what? You've been, you, were, you didn't know this, but you are a son of Julius Caesar, and he likes you so much that he could let you have all the stuff. He could let you be emperor, and he became." You know, Octavian became the next emperor and, uh, and they changed his name to Augustus Caesar or Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor of Rome at the birth of Christ. And then, and then Octavian or Caesar Augustus, same guy, right? He, he got older and he started having children and grandchildren and, you know, he started adopting, but none of them was measuring up to his level of man. You know, this is what I want for the, my, for the next person to be the emperor. And so he went to his wife's son from a previous marriage. His name was Tiberius. And Tiberius was 40 years old. And he adopted Tiberius as his son. And when he got, you know, when Octavian or Caesar Augustus died, they opened the will. I guess you became the next emperor. Not his children, children, the real children, but Tiberius. And that's just how they viewed adoption. By the way, Tiberius, you know, was the emperor at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. And so now here's the bottom line, and I guess this is very important. If you're in this room, all right, hear me and hear me well. If you're a person in this room of great wealth and means and resources... And, and you don't trust your children, <laughs> I'm just letting you know, I'm open for adoption. <laughs> all right, all right, there we go, I'm just kidding, all right. <laughs> Here's the point, when Paul wrote this, when he wrote this, the, the people that were reading this, the, the, the grown ups, the teenagers, the, the, the senior audience, when they read this, this was mind blowing. Because it meant that God looked at us as adults with all of our faults, all of our failures, all of our baggage, knowing that in the human Roman world, no one would adopt us, we're not worthy being adopted by anyone of great means or of anyone that had uh, political aspiration for us, we weren't worthy to be even considered. But God, when he looked at you, according to Paul, once you were forgiven, once you've been redeemed, once you've made that transaction, that he, he no longer wants the, the slave to the law and no longer want us to have this debt-dead relationship, he wants something more. With us. He desired a relationship and so he decided to adopt us. Adopt you, adopt me. Knowing everything that we've done, knowing everything that we're going to do, knowing every promise that we've broken with, you know, to others, to ourselves, every promise that we're going to break before him, he adopt us. You're worthy to be his child, to have full assets. To the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And and I just want for a minute for you to just let that sink in. He just want more than just, hey, you're forgiven, my child. He said, hey, I want you to be in my family. And he said, well, God, I'm not worthy to be the uh, child of the king of kings and 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 the creator of the universe. And God said, it doesn't matter because I look past all that and I desire to have a relationship. Even when nobody else cares about you. He cares. He cares. And if you're not a believer this morning, I mean, the invitation is open to you, not simply to be forgiven, not simply to make things right with God, but but that you can be adopted into the family of God. And I'm telling you, when the Galatians, when they read this, When the Greek Greek audience and the Roman audience, when they read this and when they wrote this down and passed this letter, they were overwhelmed. This was shocking. This was mind-blowing. It took the gospel to a whole new level. But then, Paul wants to seal the deal on this. Look at verse number six. He said, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba Father. This is huge. When we're related to God, not a bloodline, but through this redemption, through this buying back, and he adopted us into his family. And the Bible says that what happened is that the Holy Spirit of God inhabits your heart. and and, and it connects your relation to God, and and then the spirit inside of you calls out, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. The word Abba in the Aramaic, it's an Aramaic word, not a Greek word. It's an Aramaic word for the word daddy, daddy. So when Paul was writing this letter in the Greek language, and when he came across, under the, you know, as he was writing this, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and one word that best described this relationship, this child-father relationship, and the closest Greek word he could find was actually the word father. And, and, and Paul really struggled with this. He said, you know, it sounds so cold and distant. It sounds like, you know, Darth Vader looking at Luke Skywalker. He Luke, I'm your father. You know, I mean, who, what child goes to his mother and father and said, Mother, father, how are you doing? <laughs> no, nope. I mean, it sounds I mean, it's true, but it sounds very distant. You know, it sounds like, okay, you know. And, and, and Paul, Paul really struggled with this and said, I don't want the word father in this. It, it doesn't really grab the idea I'm trying to come across. And so he had to dip into the Aramaic version because it was the best word that he could come up with, and he come out the word Abba. This was a spoken word. So that when a little Hebrew child, when a little Hebrew baby, possibly one of the very first words that he would say to his dad would be Abba, Abba. Just like your children, when they look at you on their first word would be mama, daddy, Abba. And so Paul said, you know what, I'm gonna use that word. It's the same idea of with the word taco. How many of you like tacos? we got some taco people here. I love tacos. I mean, give me some tacos. You know, the word taco, when the English writers were trying to come up with the word for that delicious food item that's only found south of the border, they couldn't come up with a real good word in English. And then one of the English writers said, you know what, why don't we just call it what they call it? They call it taco, we'll call it taco. Taco." That's why when you talk to uh, someone, you know, in Hispanic, and you might not understand the word they say, but then if they mention the word taco, hey, I know that word. Taco, taco, we're here, together, all right, great. Abba, the same idea. Abba, daddy. And then Paul used the word father. He Abba, father, and used the word father in Greek, just a footnote, in case you don't know what Abba means, it means, I'm, I'm trying, you know, so it's Abba Father, but he's it's Abba. That's the relationship. We have access. He wanted to know that we have access, just like a little child does with his parents. But I've got in my family, my immediate family, I've got my wife, and I've got two little human beings. I've got a little boy, he's 12, and I've got a little girl, she's 6. And they have, because they call me daddy, they have assets. They have assets that you don't have. Now, we're friends. I think I'm friends with a lot of you. I really like a lot of you. I love you guys. I really do. But nobody in this room Nobody, not even my own brother can just show up in my house at 2 o'clock in the morning unannounced, uninvited just walk into the house walk into my bedroom get in my face and wake me up. I don't care who it is it ain't going to be pretty. And y'all know what I'm talking about you, you say, you know, Scott, you're my pastor but I don't have that kind of access. No way, but you know who does have that access? My two little kids that calls me daddy. They can come to our bedroom at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning for any reason. Bad nightmare, upset stomach, maybe no reason at all. Which is about half the time. You know, and, and you're, you're out of it. I mean, come on. Y'all parents know what I'm talking about. You're just kind of out of it. And sometimes you, you know, all right, let's go back to bed. Sometimes you're like just crawling in bed with us. And you're like, you're little. They're not going to take up the whole bed. Man, they have a way to knock you out of the bed. I mean, they spread all out. And, roll, they can't sleep still. And, and you try to sleep for an hour or two with the child in the bed. And finally, you say, you know what? I'm going to find me a bed or a couch that's not being used. And one of us, me and my wife, were out. But they have access, and here's what—this is the beauty of the gospel—that God's man. I I want, yeah, you're forgiven. Yeah, you've been made right with me. But I want more than that. I want something deeper. I want a relationship. You've been adopted into this family. You're my child, and I'm your Abba. And, 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 the, and this was so countercultural. I mean, because the, the Jewish, you know, Judaism and, and all the religion back then, you know, was so scripted and so archaic. It was, you know, it was your father, and it was a higher level of him up here, and we're way down here. And, and they were just almost sacrilegious to even suggest the idea that Paul's saying here. You call him Abba because you want to be your daddy in a relationship where you have access as a child of God. Verse number seven, he says, You are no longer a slave, but you're God's child. And since you're his child, God has made you also an heir. We have all the benefits, that he provides. No longer a slave. No longer relating to God through the law. You've been redeemed from the law. You're no longer relating to God as a taskmaster, as a judge. Not relating to God as a rule keeper. No longer slaves. You're God's children. And here's the bottom line. This is the message of Christmas. I got four little blunt thoughts, uh, no, four points with blanks. I'm gonna read it out pretty quick. This is the bottom line. And it sums up this whole message. You're no longer to relate to God as lawgiver, but as father, Abba, Daddy. Number two, you're no longer to look at God through the lens of what you've done, but who you are. To look to him as your child, as his child. Here's the third thought. God sent a sinless baby to pave the way to adopt a sinful adult. A sinless baby for a sinful adult. A child was born, number four, so that you could be born again. The French... Poet who wrote the song, Oh Holy Night. We looked at it last week, O Holy Night, one of the most popular songs we've seen at Christmas. He got it right. We looked at the first line last week. He wrote, Long laid the world in sin and error pining. But then the next verse, he captured this, and we've sung this a thousand times, but maybe for the first time, you'll see that. Line as it brings you true significance. He says, Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. I love that. Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Redeemed, adopted. Adoption Daddy If there's three words You can sum up this message Those three words Redeem Adoption Daddy You're worth Christmas To him When the set time had fully come God sent his son born of a woman Born under the law To redeem those under the law That we might receive adoption To sonship You're worth Christmas. You're worth Christmas. You're worth God sending his son into the world to die for you so that we could become forgiven but so much more than that we become his child of him. And that's how important. And if you receive Christ as your Savior, that's your joy. You're a child of the heavenly king you his and his alone. But if you have not received Christ, it could be. In fact, the adoption papers have been signed and it's waiting for you to say yes to him. Yes to God and say, God, come into my life. Forgive me of all my sins, the sins I've committed and the sins that I will commit come into my life. Lord and be my Savior redeem me from under the law I don't want to be a slave to the law no more I want to be seen as a child of God oh yes I am, that's who I am I've been ransomed by your grace come to my life say yes some of you need to say yes to him today say yes